Good morning. So we are continuing this series in Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're going to spend about four months in four pages of our Bibles. In this letter, I've been suggesting that uh, Paul is trying to paint a picture of the Jesus life, of what it looks like to live life with Jesus for Jesus, in Jesus, and to do that together. And we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at verses uh, 12 and 13. Uh, Pretty well-known verses to many of you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you. Some of you probably have that memorized. And there's some really rich, beautiful, deep truths and perspectives to these two verses. So we're going to spend two weeks on these verses. Uh, I'm going to focus mainly on verse 12 today and mainly on verse 13 next week. Verse 12, the second half, uh, Paul is concerned with how we work out our salvation, right? He says, continue to work out your salvation. Now, let me just be clear. He's not talking about how to work towards your salvation or to work for your salvation. Um, Paul is very clear other places. Salvation is God's free gift. It is offered to us by faith, not by works, right? Paul is saying, no, no. But now that you are Christians, speaking to these people, now that you have been saved, now you get to work out what it means to be saved. God has redeemed you. He has brought you into his family. You're the children of God. Now you get to learn to work out what it means to be God's children together. Much like we might say to, you know, like a newly married couple. Hey, you're married. It's happened. It's good and done. Now for the rest of your lives, you get to work out your marriage, right? You get to work out what it means to be a husband. You get to work out what it means to be a wife. And Paul is saying here, now you get to work out what it means to be God's saved, chosen people, his family. And he's encouraging us to take on a very specific posture. And I was thinking this week, I could have envisioned him ending this sentence in so many different ways, like this. Uh, Work out your salvation with joy, right? Work out your salvation uh, with a deep gratitude for what God has done in you. And he does basically say that in other places. But here, the answer is, work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. (laughs) Yeah, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear, in the original language, this is just the common word for fear. Trembling, of course, conjures up this image of someone shaking in their boots with fear. And together, these words fear and trembling are a stock biblical phrase that you see in different parts of Scripture. Fear and trembling is what the Israelites did when they came to Mount Sinai And God met them there at the top of the mountain in a a pillar uh, cloud with lightning and thunder and trumpet blasts. Israel experienced fear and trembling. In the New Testament, fear and trembling is what people always experience when an angel all of a sudden shows up uh, unexpectedly. Right? The first thing out of an angel's lips are always what? (laughs) Don't be afraid. (laughs) Because they're shaking in their boots. Uh, Fear and trembling is what human beings experience when they encounter the holy, when they encounter the sacred, when they encounter something awesome. And Paul's encouraging that kind of posture and how we work out our salvation. So before we get into the passage, I just want to start by saying, wait a second, Paul. Isn't the gospel that we've been released from fear? I mean, aren't you always trying to call people out of fear? Uh, what is this fear and trembling? Let me give you a couple verses that you probably are familiar with. This is Paul, same guy who wrote this. For you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave, again, to fear. But you received the spirit of adoption. And by him, by the spirit, we cry, Abba, Papa, Daddy, Father. The spirit himself testifies in our hearts 
that we are God's children. That was the prayer that Christina was praying, that we would know in our hearts the love of God for us. Um, How about this one? This is uh, John. There is no fear in love, but perfect love actually drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Or how about this great summation of the gospel? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, Paul, which is it? Fear or no fear? Which is it? Paul's answer? Yes. Yeah, someone just said it. (laughs) Answer? Yes. Fear? Yes. No fear? Yes. No fear in the sense that the, the kind of fear that leads us wondering, does God love me? I, I, am I condemned? I, I, am I still desperately trying to seek and gain his approval? The gospel has released us from that fear. There's no condemnation. God, you are his children. He loves you. In that sense, there is no more fear in the gospel. Uh, but there's another kind of fear that Paul's talking about here that is actually part of a healthy, flourishing relationship with God. I would define this as, a, as an awe, as a sense of, of reverence for who God is. And then living a life of humility and wholehearted uh, submission to him in our lives in light of who he is. Okay, That kind of fear, Paul says, yes. The opposite of that kind of fear is not peace and joy and freedom. The opposite of that kind of fear would be to live a life that is just cavalier, a life that is half-hearted, that is distracted that says, I'm going to kind of do what I want with my life, and I don't really care what God thinks. That would be the opposite of the kind of fear Paul is talking about. And so today, today, I want to explore this idea, living our lives, working on our salvation with fear and trembling. And specifically what I want to do is I want to set that phrase that we many of us have heard a lot, many years, I want to set it in its context and see, see what does Paul mean? Why, why is Fear and trembling, the right response in light of the context of this, in light of what he says just before this, and in light of what he says just after this. So that's what I want to do, set this in context today. And as we do this, I'd encourage you to think about your own life. Um, If you believe in God, to say, what what is my posture in terms of how I'm trying to work out my life, my daily life with God? What kind of posture do I bring? And and just sort of set that uh, alongside of what you're hearing Paul call us to. All right, so we're going to look at first what comes before this and what comes after and see how that makes sense of fear of the Lord. So notice in verse 12, our verse, what does verse 12 begin with in your translation? What's the first word there? Therefore, right? Therefore, meaning verse 12 is a natural conclusion of what has just been said. In light of what just happened, therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So what did he just say? Well, in verse 6 through 11, Paul has just said some amazing things about Jesus, Right, this, this famous hymn about Jesus. And last week we looked mainly at verse 6 through 8 where he talks about how Jesus left the glory of heaven. Right? All that he had as eternal God left the glory of heaven and emptied himself of all of his divine privileges and entered into life at Christmas as an ordinary human baby. And then even as a human being, he further humbled himself and went the way of the cross. This, this life of downward trajectory downward mobility in order to love and serve us. It's a life of humility. We talked about that last week. And then in verse 9 and 11, Paul goes on to say what God the Father did in response to Jesus' life of humble service. And I want to re- let me just read these verses again. Verse 9, follow with me. Therefore, in light of what Jesus did, God has now exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he's saying, in light of what Jesus did across, God has now exalted Jesus to the highest place in the universe. Jesus now has the preeminent position in the universe. And the praise that belongs to God now belongs to Jesus. The, the authority that belongs to him. He, 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 everything, everything that one could have that God has, Jesus now has because God has raised him to that place. And one day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He is currently Lord. We just don't see it right now. But one day, his lordship will be made perfectly clear to everybody. And what's really interesting in this, in this uh, little, these verses is that Paul is actually intentionally echoing language of the book of Isaiah. That phrase, every knee will bow and every tongue acknowledge, is taken straight from Isaiah 45. Let me just take you there for a second. Okay, you don't have to go in your Bibles. So Isaiah is written hundreds of years earlier. And it's at a time where Israel was being pretty disobedient to God. There was lots of idolatry. People were worshiping other gods. And so God is basically defending himself. In, in these chapters of Isaiah, showing that he really is the one true God and that all the nations, including Israel, will one day recognize the truth that he alone is God. Let me read you a couple of verses. This is, well, I'll just read it. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he's God. Okay, not your idols. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God. And there is no other. By myself I have sworn. My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. And then he, here's the the Philippians language. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But in the Lord, all the descendants of Israel, we'll find out that also includes the nations, uh, will be found righteous and will exalt. God is saying, I alone am God, and I will do something that at some point every single person in creation will acknowledge that I am God. And what's clear in the context, that will not necessarily be a pleasant experience for everybody, Right? For those who put their faith in me, that will be a moment of deep comfort and joy. But for those who have raged against him, they will come to a realization that they were living a life of illusion and it will be made clear. Okay, so that's the Isaiah context. So now Paul, hundreds of years later, takes that language and now attributes it to Jesus. That one day, and he's talking about the, the second coming of Christ, that one day every knee will bow in heaven on earth and on earth, and every time we'll confess that Jesus is Lord. Okay? This is amazing theology that we've gotten used to 2,000 years later. But Paul is basically saying things that can only be said of the one true God of the universe can now be said of a craftsman from Nazareth, of a traveling first century Jewish rabbi. It's an amazing theological statement about that Jesus is God. And Paul is pointing us to the second coming of Jesus, where Jesus will break through whatever illusions we live with, and he will reveal the fact that he truly is Lord of the universe. And every knee will bow, and every tongue is going to confess that. Okay, That that is not a touchy-feely moment that Paul is describing. 
okay? For those who have raged against him, their illusions will come down and they'll see reality as it is. For those who have put their trust in him, that will be a moment of joy and comfort. Okay, but that is, that is what is, that, that's what's coming. Are you with me? Okay, so verse 12, therefore, <laughs> work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In light of what God has done in Jesus and what one day will be made clear, in light of that, work out your faith with a sense of awe and reverence and humility. He's not saying live in constant fear of that future day, wondering whether or not Jesus is going to save me or condemn me. That's, clear. That's not what he's saying, but he's saying live under the reality that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. That will be made clear to everyone in the future, but live today as if he is Lord. Let his lordship have an impact on every area of your life. That's the kind of fear and trembling. It's a sense that Jesus is Lord. And I want to humble myself. I want to I come under his lordship in every area of my life. Okay, so it's, it's helpful to think the opposite posture of that kind of fear of the Lord would be a posture of this. I believe in Jesus. But you know what? In the end, I, I'm going to live my life kind of however I darn well please. Okay, I, yeah, I get, I get, I believe Jesus died for my sins, but... When it comes to push, I'm going to spend my money how I want to spend my money. I'm going to spend my time how I want to spend my time. I'm going to, I'm going to say things the way I want to say them. I'm going to watch what I feel like watching. Okay, that would be the opposite of the fear. That's not bringing ourselves under the authority of Jesus in all the different areas of our lives. It's not living with a sense of awe and reverence of who he is and who he will one day be revealed to be. Paul is saying, work out your salvation. Let every aspect of your life come under this truth that Jesus really is Lord. And one day, that will be made very clear to all. So live today as if that were true. Does that make sense? Okay, fear and trembling. All right, now let's look at what comes after the statement. And I love this. That, that's what I just said. That's a cosmic reality, right? That's a universal reality Paul's acknowledging. Now he goes to talk about something that's actually a very intimate and personal reality. So verse 13 is what comes right after. Uh, in your translation, what is the first word in verse 13? For, right? F-O-R, not F-O-U-R. F-R, F-R. Uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, or we might say because, right? Paul's saying, I'm going to give you a reason why you would work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What is that reason? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Okay, the, the emphasis in, Paul, in the original language is on God. So if I can say it a different way, he's saying this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because the one who is working in you is God. <laughs> That's the one who's working in you. None other than the living creator, God of the universe. Work out your salvation with a sense of awe and wonder and privilege. Why? Because the one who spun out galaxies, however many years ago, the one who literally upholds every particle in the universe, the one who has always existed, the one who always will exist, the the everlasting one, that is the one who is at work in you. 
both giving you the desires to follow him and enabling you to actually do what brings him pleasure. So work it out with a sense of awe of that reality. God is the one working in you. Uh, I've got a horrible analogy coming up, okay? (laughs) Really inadequate. And I even used the wrong person, but some of you, I'm a Lakers fan, this is going to be horrible. But okay, so here's, imagine you're back in high school and um, you want to be a basketball player. And you want to, you know, be as good as you can be. And so your folks say, hey, you know, we, we've, uh, we've hired a uh, basketball trainer for you who's going to come alongside you over the next year and just kind of help you become the best ba- basketball player you can be. So the next day there's a knock on the door and you open the door and LeBron James is standing there. And he says, hey, uh, great to meet you. I'm really looking forward to uh, working with you this next, next year, working on your dribbling and your passing and your rebounds and your shooting. And you are just like, oh my goodness. Are you going to work on your basketball skills? Um, how are you going to work on your basketball skills? The answer is with fear and trembling. <laughs> right? Not because you're afraid every time I mess up, LeBron's going to criticize me. No, but because LeBron James is the one who is working with you over the next year. This sense of privilege and honor and, oh my goodness, I, I am not going to take this lightly. Right? I'm going to do whatever I can to be the best basketball player because the one who's working with me is LeBron James. Or whatever analogy you need. Maybe you, you know, if you want to be a great actor, okay, and uh, you get that knock on the door and, and Meryl Streep's sitting there waiting for you, saying, I'm really looking forward to working with you over the next year on your acting. Okay? Well, you'd pick the person. But Paul, that's, that's you know, again, horrible analogy. But that, that times a thousand. Paul's saying, why do we do this? Because the one who's working in us is God, the God of the universe. Let's not take that lightly. That is a beautiful, sacred thing. We, we tread on sacred ground. We, we become sacred ground. His spirit is active in us. Man, don't take that lightly. What a privilege, what an honor that the God of the universe would devote his affection and his time and his energy and, and, and all of that into little old me, little old you. It's an amazing thing. And I, I hope and pray um, that, that you have had experiences where you could say without a doubt, God is working in me right now. Like God is working in my heart, in mind. God is doing a fresh work in me. And the truth is this, this is going on. Verse 13, this is going on all the time, whether we kind of always see it for what it is or not. God is always at work in us. But, but as I thought about this week, I, I just wanted to know, I, I hope that you have moments in your life that are particularly fresh and poignant where you, it's clear to you, God is at work in my heart. He's doing a fresh thing. And I was just thinking back on my, my life, like the last 20 years of my, my life with God. And most of the time, life just kind of goes, right? Day in, day out, we're just doing the grind. But as I look at my life over the last 20 years, I would say... <laughs> it's about every 18 months or so, every year, every maybe two years, where I feel like God is doing a particular fresh and new work, that he is, he is, he is pressing some theme into my life, okay? And he does it usually, I, I might read a scripture that just really hits me in a fresh way. I sense his spirit is at work leaning into some issue. I'm having a series of conversations with people. I'm reading a book. Certain circumstances are happening. It's usually when, when a bunch of things converge on a single theme 
And it becomes very clear to me, gosh, well, I, I am, it is clear, God, you're doing something right now. And, and it's a theme that almost never has something to do with my New Year's resolutions, if you know what I mean, <laughs> right? It's like a theme that comes out of the blue. I wasn't looking for this. This was what I was working on. But it's like, it's not an audible voice from heaven, but it is clear, God, you're at work. You are, you are doing something fresh right now in my life. And I love that. I mean, I, I'll give you just a couple examples. In the last three, I'm just going to mention themes. In the last maybe five years, um, one of the themes he worked in me about five year, years ago was, was joy. I was living anxious and, and so serious about every little thing. I feel like God, in, in about a six-month period, through a bunch of different ways, was like, I am just going to work joy into your life because one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. Um, a couple years back, it was faith. And learning what does it mean to actually trust God and actually take in his promises and, and, and eat them like a good meal and be nourished by them and then live from that place of being filled up. Um, right now, I'm, the theme is compassion <laughs> in, in learning to have true compassion for those who are hurting. And I fake compassion pretty well, actually. Um, but... Right now, the theme is coming alongside people and genuinely suffering with them because that's what Jesus does. About every 18 months for me, maybe it's more often for you, maybe it's less often, but I hope that you have experience of that. It's, it's a sacred thing when the God of the universe will come alongside an ordinary human being and do a fresh work. And so Paul is saying, man, work out your salvation with a sense of awe and wonder because God, God is working in you. What a privilege. That's not something to be taken lightly. See, you, you don't want to ignore that. You don't want to just dismiss that. You don't want to just say, eh, whatever. No, no, no. I want to do everything I can to cooperate with that. When that happens, I want to, I want to, I want, God, I'm listening. And sometimes the work is, it's a painful work. It's not always a fun work. But it's still a privilege and it's still, it's still a good work. And so Paul's saying, yeah, man. Appreciate that. Live in a sense of awe. Don't take that lightly. Don't take that for granted. So there you have the context. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? First off, it's a universal reality because Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. Live as though he's the Lord of your life. And then the second one is a deeply personal thing because the God of the universe, he's at work in you. So awe and reverence is the appropriate Response. And the more I've thought through this phrase and studied this phrase, the fear of the Lord, the more I've gained a deep appreciation for it. Um, I'm about to wrap up, but I want to give you a couple of verses from the Psalms that talk about the fear of the Lord and what a beautiful, actually a beautiful concept it is, rightly understood. Um, look at these. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord, who finds great, what's the word? Delight in his commandments. I don't always pair fear and delight together. <laughs> But the scriptures do. If you fear God appropriate, you take great delight in his commandments because you know they bring life. Uh, how about this? The Lord delights in those who fear him and those who put their hope in his unfailing love. Again, I don't pair uh, uh, fear and hoping in love, but the scriptures do. How about this one? The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Friendship and fear. I don't always put those together, but the Bible does appropriately understood, fearing God, that's, God says, you're my friend. Those are the kinds that I like to have as friends, people who, who fear me. <laughs> How 
uh, most famously, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Fear and compassion together. I was reading a couple weeks ago about, uh, we were in our Axios study in Acts, and there's this amazing phrase about the early church that I think sums up everything I'm trying to say here. Uh, It says this of the early church. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, and it was being built up. And then here's the phrase. In walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Fear and comfort all together. Isn't that amazing? I wouldn't normally pair those things together, but that is paired together because our God is all of those things. So here's what I want to say just in conclusion. I just want to give you my observation of the church in America. Okay, the next three minutes is not Paul, it's Dave. Take it or leave it. All right, but I'm going to end with Dave. My observation of the church in America, for the most part, is the church is losing a fully biblical view of who God is. Okay, and here's what I mean by that. On the one hand, you still have Christians in our country preaching hellfire and brimstone, sitting on street corners, right, with signs that tell us the kinds of people that God hates, using fear to try to, I guess, motivate people towards salvation. I actually don't personally know any of those people, but I can read about them in the paper. They, they're still out there, okay? Um, that, that is not the view of God that Jesus presents us with in the Gospels. Let me just say that. Now, I think there's another group of Christians who have, I think, appropriately reacted to that whole thing, said, I don't want anything to do with that, right? And so, but I think maybe the pendulum has swung in, in an unhealthy way, way where what they've done is they've now created a God who is always tame and always safe and always cozy, a God who, who would never actually punish somebody, a God whose only, only punishment would, would be to give people freedom to do what they want, and they have to live with the consequences of their own actions, okay? But, but sin is downplayed, and God is tamed. And I would suggest that that, too, is actually not the picture of God that Jesus presents us with in the gospel accounts. And really, the, the problem with both of those views is both views, in the end, they're flat. They're one-dimensional, They're overly simplistic, and they don't actually do justice to the depth and the color and the complexity and the robustness of who God actually is, according to Jesus, and certainly according to the scriptures. Jesus paints this amazingly robust view of God, who is this God of grace and compassion and mercy, but he's also this God of holiness and power and authority. There's this depth to it. It's a God who leaves us experiencing joy and comfort and freedom, but also experiencing a sense of awe and reverence and humility and wonder. And I think, I quoted C.S. Lewis last week, I think C.S. Lewis's greatest contribution to Christianity is the character of Aslan in the Narnia stories. He's this Christ figure who, as the statement says, right, he, he is not tame, but he is good. But he's the kind of being where when you get to know him, you just want to run and you just want to bury your face in his mane, right? And, and throw your arms around him and bury your face, and he will let you do that. But he's also being who, when you're doing that, you will never forget that you've buried your face in the mane of a lion, <laughs> Right? 
you will, you will never forget both of those parts of who God is. And the beauty of the complexity of our God is that we too are very complex creatures. We're very complex and our hearts are so complex. And when we hold to a fully, I think, Jesus picture of God, the beautiful thing is we get to preach the different qualities of God to ourselves Uh, And there's such beautiful things. So those parts of our hearts that are still caught in shame and guilt, and we're still trying so hard to earn God's favor, we get to preach this God who is merciful, who has forgiven our sins because of what Jesus did, who loves us as a father loves his kids, and let that that the comfort of the Holy Spirit comfort us there. But to that other part of us that wakes up each day and says, you know what, I kind of just want to live however I want to live today. Well, we preach the other parts of God to that part of us. No, no, no. Jesus is Lord. God is awesome. He's at work. That's not to be taken lightly. I want to submit my life today in my daily decisions to him. I don't want to just do whatever the heck I want to do because I can do it. That's the beauty of the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the fear of the Lord. So what we're going to do is we're going to end by singing some songs together, worshiping the Lord through music. And I want to encourage you just to sit with this picture of God, this complex, robust, just massive God that we serve. And let's, let's sing and, and rejoice in the, the freedom that we have. And let's acknowledge the size of our God and the, the awesomeness of his being. So let me, let me close in prayer and then we're going to worship our Lord together. Lord, you're so worthy of praise. Jesus, you are mighty and you are merciful. You are just and you're the one who justifies sinful people. You are the lion from the tribe of Judah and you are the little lamb who was slain for our sins. There is nothing that compares to you. Nothing that compares to the depth and beauty of all of that. That one person can contain all of those amazing qualities. And so today we say we want to live in a way that reflects who you are. We want to live in freedom, in joy, in gratitude. And we want to live in reverence, in awe, in wonder, in humility. And so I pray even as we sing and lift up our voices to you, that you would reveal yourself to us in in the lyrics of these songs, even in the melodies, that, that the different parts of who you are, that your spirit would impress those in our hearts, wherever we need to hear those. So whatever part of you, of your character, we need to receive this morning. Spirit, just speak, breathe, into our lives. Help us to worship you. And so we worship now in fear because it's you. You're the one who enables us to worship. So we praise your name together. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.